Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We are located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we want to be a community of faithfully present people with God, self, and others. We hope that this encourages you to do the same wherever you are. And thanks for joining us. All right, so we are going to jump into the sermon for today. My name is Alex, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption. So if you're new here, I just want to say, one, thank you so much for joining us today. And two, uh, if you've been tracking along with us for any number of weeks, then you know that we are in a unique series. Uh, Our series is entitled, My Neighbor, Ethnicity, Justice, and the Image of God. You know, after the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, uh, we decided to pause uh, in the book of Acts several weeks ago and, and not just stay glued to our television screens or our phone screens or jump from media headline to headline, but we as Christians understand that our first and foremost responsibility is to follow Jesus. And we do so best by immersing ourselves in the Word of God. And so we wanted to look into what does the Bible have to say about these important issues, and not just in one place, but in each genre of scripture. The Bible is arranged by genres, just like my study here is arranged by each a genre of writing. The Bible's like that, law and prophets and gospels and history and apocalyptic literature and wisdom literature and so on. So far, we've studied narrative, law, prophets, wisdom literature, and today we are now getting into the genre known as Gospels. Yes, the gospel message about the person and the work of Jesus is contained within the Gospels, uh, but it's also a genre in and of itself. The Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the word gospel, some of you are already up to speed on this, you know that the word gospel is not new or unique to the Bible itself. Rather, it first and foremost had its home in a political arena or the military arena. So at, say, the birth of uh, Caesar Augustus, the word gospel was used. Good news, glad tidings to describe the birth of a man of power. Uh, the word gospel would be used at the coronation of, a, of an emperor. We have a protector, a ruler on his throne. The word gospel would also be used on the battlefield, in a military context. Good news, the kingdom's expanding, right? But when Jesus comes on the scene, the same word is used. Good news of great joy, the king of kings has been born. And after Jesus rose from the grave, people stopped using the word in reference to Rome or a military or an emperor or so on, but rather it is used now exclusively in reference to the God we Christians worship, Jesus Christ. So this genre, though, it is unique. You know, Jesus never wrote a book, and yet he is the most famous history, and there's more books written about Jesus than any other person in the history of the world. So let me tell you a little bit about these writers, these uh, evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptics. Sin, meaning similar, optics to see, uh, they give a similar vision, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When you read those, they tell many of the same stories, but they nuance things in different ways. John, on the other hand, tells things differently. He doesn't tell contradictory stories. He just tells some stories and arranges his materials in ways that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't. Matthew, writing in about 80, 70, 
was writing to the Jews, as a Jew to the Jews, about their Jewish Messiah, the King Jesus. Mark was writing to persecuted Christians in Rome in about 50 or so A.D. Luke was writing in about 63 A.D. to Theophilus. John was writing to the Greeks in around 90 A.D. Today we're going to be looking specifically into Matthew chapter 23 as Jesus pronounces a series of woes to the people known as the Pharisees and the scribes. And as he does so, he is not holding back. Jesus sounds like a prophet because he is the ultimate prophet. And he's confronting the religious people of his day. These were people that had committed their lives. I mean, every waking moment of their life was just utterly in surrender to the law of God. From Genesis to Malachi, these were men that had surrendered everything to God's divine law. So I'll tell you about the scribes. The scribes were men that were committed, one, to copying the Old Testament law, right? And then distributing that. Uh, But not only that, they were very strict adherents to the law. They didn't just copy it. They obeyed it with great rigor. Uh, And the other thing that they were known for is that they worked in the local court system, the scribes, okay? And then there are the Pharisees. You see these, this particular group mentioned several times throughout the Gospels. And Jesus is continually butting heads with them. They're the religious rulers and authorities of the day. They were known as the religious separatists. They were purists. They wanted to seek reform in the nation of Israel, for Israel to go back to her true calling. Yes, they were under Roman rule, but they wanted to preserve the purity of Israel and have Israel be her true self, which is, that's good. (laughs) And at the same time, They took things so far. They began to add things on top of the law, laws on top of the laws, so that the Bible would say in the Old Testament, don't work on Sabbath, and the Pharisees would say, so that means don't take over 1,000 steps on a Saturday. Things like that. They would add a law on top of a law. They had their oral traditions that they, they held people to. And they were notorious for being harsh with the law, heavy with the law, cruel to people with the law, and yet found ways to be easy on themselves when it came to the law. It's a convicting passage of Scripture for any of us who are seeking to follow God in this world. If you've ever been tempted toward being self-righteous and legalistic, I know I have. Passages like this can be extremely convicting, which is their point. And so I'm about to read a hard hard passage from Jesus himself. And as I do, I want to remind you that Jesus, because he loves us, he tells us the truth. That a Jesus that doesn't confront us and Jesus that doesn't tell us the truth and Jesus that will not shed light on dark places is not the Jesus of Scripture. Jesus loves us and because he loves us, he tells us the truth. The people that are telling you the truth in your life are the ones who love you. The ones who continue to turn a blind eye and not speak up about blind spots in our own lives. 
that's unloving. Jesus is willing to tell the truth. So in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is coming through like a fiery prophet. Let me read to you these series of woes. And he's, and let me just remind you of one other thing about Jesus. I know, I'll, I promise I'll get to the scripture, but just one other thing. As Matthew is writing as a Jew to the Jews, he's arranged his material in such a way that would leap off the pages to the Jews, but not in ways that tend to leap off the pages to us, right? Matthew arranges his material in such a way that any Jewish writer would go, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to conclude that Jesus is greater than Moses. Here's what I mean. In the Old Testament law, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Moses. And yet in Matthew's gospel, you have Matthew chapter 5 to 7, chapter 10, chapter 13, chapter 18, chapters 23 to 25. Jesus has five teaching discourses. A Jew would go, oh, that's interesting. Moses, in in the Exodus, goes up a mountain. Lightning flashes, meets with God, comes down with the law. Jesus, in Matthew 5, goes up the mountain, no lightning, and teaches the new law of God, how how life is to be lived as a follower of his, as they seek to bring the kingdom from heaven to earth. Moses wanders for 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus fasts for 40 days and defeats the enemy. There are several clues along the way that that a Jew would go, oh my gosh, Jesus is greater than Moses. And as Jesus is being proven to be greater than Moses, Jesus teaches with great authority and is willing to rebuke the authorities on Moses. This, these words I'm about to read to you would have been utterly shocking. They would have, the, the hearers, the Pharisees and the scribes would have gone, who is this? This is utterly absurd. This is so out of place. Think of a time or a place that is so sacred to you. Think of somewhere like, for those of you moms and dads, uh, you, you prepare the nursery. You bring your baby home. To that sacred place. For those of you who uh, are married, think of the, the church that you were married in. <sighs> think of a sacred place, a funeral. Think about that place and imagine someone coming in. You come into that place, the nursery, the church, a funeral setting. And you find a bunch of mobsters sitting around poker tables, blowing cigars, smoke everywhere. You walk into that room and you would go, who are you people? You are completely out of line. That's how Jesus sounds in this moment. That he comes on this religious scene and he says, you're the people that are supposed to be the light of the world. You're supposed to be the hope of the world. You've got the law of God. You're the people of God. And yet you couldn't be further out of place. Listen to his woes, just like in Malachi. It says this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut up the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither yourselves enter nor you would you allow these to go in. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land and make a sinner a proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. These woes, these are funeral dirges. Sudden sadness should come over you. Woe to you, you hypocrites, you play actors, you you thespians with your masks on. That's literally what he's saying. Woe to you. You travel to try to make converts, but when you do, they turn out twice as bad as you. (laughs) Hmm. Woe to you. Blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he's bound by oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it. And everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we lived in the days of of our fathers, we would not have taken part in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then... The measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? This would have sounded, this would have been an experience of like walking into the baby nursery and the mobsters blowing cigar smoke everywhere. The audience would have gone, who are you? You are so far out of line here, Jesus. And yet, because Jesus is love and because Jesus is fiercely committed to truth and to justice, he says what has to be said. Like a prophet coming out of the wilderness. That's what Jesus is doing here. Pronouncing seven woes. And he starts calling them out. You tie burdens on people's backs and you don't even lift a finger to help. Think about that. You're making life hard on people. And you're doing it in the name of God. You're just like the people Matthew talk about when he talks about Corbin or the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. In, the, in, in dealings with Corbin, the Pharisees were guilty of saying, oh, I can't take care of my in-laws. I can't take care of my elderly parents because, you know, I gave all my money to God. I'm sorry. Jesus is like, you're using the law in an abusive way. How dare you? 
you're just like the Good Samaritan passage where the priest and the Levite see a man that's beat to death laying in a gutter and they go, oh, you know, the Bible does say don't, you know, mingle with unclean things. So I got to get to, to worship anyway. And they pass by on the other street. Jesus is calling these people out going, you're tying burdens up on people's back and you're not willing to help. You're finding ways to blaspheme God by using his law to, as an excuse to not love your neighbor and to remain in a life of self-indulgence, comfort, and selfishness. You need to repent. Woe to you. He even says, well, you know, he calls them out and saying, you're the kind of people who say, well, if I lived way back then, I would have done the right thing. I would never have persecuted Jeremiah or Isaiah or Amos or Nahum or Habakkuk or Joel or Amos or Zephaniah. No, no, no. Or Berechiah. I would have done any of I, uh, I would have done the right thing. I would have heeded the words of the prophets. And he says, no, you wouldn't. Stop pretending and putting conjecture back going, yeah, I would have been good back then. He's like, you wouldn't have been good back then. You're not good now. <laughs> How many of us are willing to say that now? Well, if I, 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 you know, back in 1960, I would have made the right choices. I would have, I wouldn't have stood for injustice. You sure? You sure? <sighs> this is, this is, this is ultimately what led them to killing Jesus. He was too real. He was too in our faces. And the, and the, the crux of this whole series of woes that he is pronouncing on them is arranged just like we read last week in Proverbs 6. The chiasm, the Hebrew writing method to offset the main point. Remember, six things the Lord hates, seven he despises. We look for the middle piece, the heart that, that, that plans the evil, right? Remember that part? There's another one here in the seven woes. And the fourth woe comes to us Failure to practice the heart of the scripture. The heart, the thrust, the core of the scripture. Listen to it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. There's the center. There's the chiasm. Saying you, you, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You, you go into your spice racks and you strain out an ounce of this and an ounce of that, a teaspoon of this and a teaspoon of that. And you're down, you're, you're so diligent, you're so committed to, to, to getting it right before God. You're, you're not going to miss a single grain in sacrifice. You're going to make sure you did it right. And yet, you neglect the very heart. <laughs> you, you neglect justice and mercy and faithfulness. In Luke 11, Luke is recording the same scene right here, but Luke says it just a little different. He says, woe to you. You tithe rue and talks about a few spices. And then he says this, and, and you neglect justice and the love of God. Catch that. You neglect justice and the love of God. Jesus is saying, 
What do you think all this is about? Is it really, is it really about a teaspoon of minced dill? Is that what it's about? It's about justice and mercy and faithfulness. You need to repent. I want you to practice what you say you believe. I want a life that corresponds to the words that you're so content to sing or pray or preach or instruct others in. I want your hands and feet to somehow find themselves in places that your words seem to to go to. I want your feet to follow those words into that place. I want your hands to move into that place. I want you to practice what you preach. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Wow. Jesus is convicting, that's for sure. But I need you to hear something too, church. Jesus, with every rebuke that he gives, there's, there's always an invitation to come to him as well. You see, Jesus is not merely into just being punitive. He's into being restorative. He's into correction. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, or 2 Timothy 3, 16, that all scripture is inspired, breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, this, for instruction in righteousness. Wow. Like, so when Jesus rebukes us and when Jesus says, wake up. Do not fall asleep at the wheel of your life. Do not fall asleep at the wheel of your faith. Wake up, church. Wake up. He's not being mean. He's not being rude. He's not being a bully. He's not being unkind. He's telling the truth. I need you to wake up. Because I'm hidden and bound up in the suffering of your neighbors. As often as you did it to the least of these, he'll say in Matthew 25, you did it to me. As often as you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. I need you to wake up, church. I want you to treat those who are suffering as though I was bound up in that moment. And I want you to run and help, serve, extend grace, kindness, speak up, be salt, be light, be like the Good Samaritan. And if you're wondering, well, is there grace for anybody like me? I mean, I, I've not been just, I know I haven't, I, I haven't walked the perfect life where every day and every moment of my life I've sought to do justice I haven't is there mercy for me and the answer is oh yeah is there grace for me yeah where do you see it well where we find all our answers every week every one of these texts drives us to the cross of Jesus What do you see happening at the cross of Jesus? These very people, the Pharisees, who conspired against Jesus, who ran an unjust mock trial in which Jesus 
did not get a fair hearing, still was brutalized and murdered, strung up on a cross outside the city, right? As Jesus is dying and the crowds are crying out and mocking him and spitting on him and jeering at him and all that's going on, what do you see Jesus do? Surrounded by a religious crowd, Jesus is the only one in prayer. On Yom Kippur, Jesus is the only one found praying. As the lambs are being slaughtered, the Lamb of God is hanging on his cross. And what does the Lamb say? The Lamb says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Please forgive them. If you find yourself in a place today where you are struggling with feeling guilty, feeling shame, something like that, I want you to know that the Lamb of God died for your sins and that he was resurrected from the grave so that you could become the righteousness of God and so that you could live your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you do, you can go about not receiving woe after woe for living a life of waywardness, but you can live a life of being affirmed by Jesus again and again. Well done, well done, well done. You're not neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. As you live that life, keep your eyes on the fact that one day you're going to stand before Jesus and after living a life of pursuing love of neighbor, practicing justice, walking in holiness, you'll hear your Savior say, you'll see him looking at you. You'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Thanks for listening. Thanks again for joining us. If you want more information about our church or would like to come visit us on a Sunday, go to redemptionseattle.com.